0: After six months of writing and rewriting, amid a summer and fall full of roller coaster highs and lows, we're finally here, at my prospectus defense. Now It was touch and go there for a while, and I wasn't sure that I would be able to pull out anything from my very tired brain, but I did it! And now it's time to defend this thing that I will be creating for the next seven months. Just tell us the story of your perspectives. How did you get here? You know what I mean? Right. To what you have um, unleashed upon us and (laughs) will soon unleash upon the world. Um. (laughs) That's the voice of my committee chair, Dr. Gretchen Bussel. You'll get to know her quite well over the next few months. I have ADHD. You got to give me specifics or we're going to end up in the weeds within two minutes. What story do you want? I mean, why am I doing a podcast or why this subject or both? Yes. Why am I doing the PhD? Okay. As I mentioned last time, I'm doing this PhD for a number of reasons. Um, Because I love libraries, because I believe in open access, but also because I needed to do it for myself. I'm one of those women that are called the Lost Girls, because we were the ones who came up in the eighties and nineties who didn't get diagnosed with ADHD simply because we were girls. Uh, Many of us never got the help that we needed and it led to lives of chaos and confusion for me to have taken control of my life to such an extent that I'm able to sit here and talk to you now about these things that I love and believe in and know that there's a degree waiting at the end of it is so important. Which is why this was a welcome, if not entirely unsurprising, moment. You obviously have earned your hunting license. You knew that when you were coming in, you would walk away with it. So no problems there, right? I know, but I still get anxious. So here we are. I passed with flying colors and a great deal of support on the part of my advisors. And when I tell you that I'm one of the lucky few... When it comes to grad students who aren't completely traumatized by their advisors and their programs, understand that I mean that in all seriousness. Too many students leave their programs damaged, and so many more never make it all the way to the end at all. The trauma is real, y'all, and it lingers. Those of us who have supportive and encouraging advisors are rare, and we know how lucky we are. Oh, have happy few, we banned the bugger. So then, it sounds like the whole process was a piece of cake, right? Don't be so sure. Anything can happen when you're blazing your own trails. My name is Elizabeth Hedrick, I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Texas Women's University, and you're listening to Anxiety in the Archives, my podcast dissertation. Now, this is the point where I should say that if you haven't listened to episode one, you should go back now and listen. Things will make much more sense, or at least a little bit more sense. So before I tell you about my prospectus defense, and before we delve into the dirty secrets about academic cycles of violence, we have some unfinished business from the last episode, and that business concerns the entire concept of open access. Do you remember how I told you that there was no succinct and concise way to explain open access? Well, buckle up, y'all, because this is going to take a minute. Hold on to your butts. In order to understand the nuts and bolts of open access, we need first to understand the traditional process of academic publishing. A scholar, academic, researcher, student, PhD candidate, etc., will spend months, sometimes longer, researching and writing an article. This could be anything from a scientific study, to a literary analysis, to historiographic research into the Salem Witch Trials. There's a lot going on in academia, y'all, and academics love to share their work. They will then submit the article in the hopes that a journal will publish it. If the article is acceptable at first glance, the journal editor will then send it to peer reviewers, usually at least two, who will carefully read the article for any number of concerns, including validity of the research methods, the effectiveness of the argument, and the quality of the writing. If the article is considered to have merit, but still needs some work, and most articles will need additional work, it will be sent back to the author for revisions. After this back-and-forth process, if the author is fortunate, the article will be accepted and move ahead to the copy-editing or proofreading stage. Finally, after final corrections have been made, it will be published. This is not a speedy process, y'all. I work with faculty publications on a daily basis, and I've seen some articles take years to move from initial submission to final publication. The time frame will vary depending on the journal and the subject matter. A 2013 article that examined academic publishing delays found that the hard sciences had the shortest time, with an average of nine months, as opposed to the social sciences and humanities, which took an average of 18 months. It's also important to keep in mind that this is the best-case scenario. It's common for an article to receive a rejection from an editor and never get sent to peer review. This is known as a desk rejection. Now, the crux of the issue here is that the vast majority of academic articles are submitted to And published by subscription-based journals. What this means is that the only people who will be able to access these articles are the people who are part of institutions that can afford to pay the fee for these subscription journals or people who buy individual subscriptions to these journals. And there are a lot of journals. No one institution can afford to subscribe to all the journals. So they make choices based on what the majority of their faculty and students need. This can lead to gaps in the knowledge and research available to patrons of a university library. So, how does open access fit into this scenario? And to make a long story short, too late. The basic concept of open access publishing is relatively simple. An academic author follows all of the steps I previously mentioned, But when deciding where to submit their work, they choose an open access journal. After all of the hoopla of peer reviewing and copy editing, the article will be published in a journal that is free and immediately available for anyone to read, download, and utilize in their own work, as long as they have an internet connection. It's a great idea, and one that I support, but I would be remiss if I didn't discuss the vulnerabilities that are baked into a system like this. The most common concern about open access is the existence of author processing charges, or APCs. Some open access journals charge APCs as a means of offsetting a journal's production costs. Not all journals do this, and the legitimate journals that do have APCs don't charge authors until or if the article passes through the peer review stage and is finally accepted for publication. Unfortunately, some open access publishers exist only to make money and will charge exorbitant fees up front. They may do this before any peer review is attempted, or they may skip peer review altogether. These types of journals have been dubbed predatory publishers <laughs> by academic librarian Jeffrey Beale, a notorious and rather nefarious individual when it comes to conversations about open access publishing. I'll tell y'all more about Beale in a bit, and we will get into greater detail about predatory publishing as we go, because both Beale and the concept of predatory publishing are extremely problematic for a number of reasons. However, the important thing to keep in mind right now is that despite the existence of predatory publishers, open access has the potential to create a more equitable network of information and research and openness and building on the work of others that Bo Bjork has argued is the basic ethos of science. He continues, In few other publishing industries has there been such a strong case for open access to information. Open access publishing allows those who come from smaller and less well funded institutions to get their work in print, and it allows them to access the most up to date research, which furthers their own studies. This is especially important when it comes to the sciences, which advance at a rapid pace. Anyone who can't afford the subscription journals could get lost and left behind. Now, some in academia are staunchly against open access, like the aforementioned academic librarian Jeffrey Beale. Beale's vendetta against open access is so hardcore that you would think an open access journal said something bad about his mother. And if y'all think I'm kidding, well, in an article that he co-authored a few years ago, Beale stated that open access journals have created problems so serious that we believe they threaten the very existence of science more so than at any time since it began to emerge in seventeenth century Europe. Statements like this, especially from academics like Jeffrey Beale, constitute a type of form control where speech and communication are carefully supervised and controlled through the acceptance and or rejection of academic works. In calling out the use of forum control, rhetoric professor Dale Sullivan has stated that, while techniques of forum control are necessary, they are nevertheless exercises in political power, and they are sometimes used in unethical ways. It's all very dramatic right? And that's just scratching the surface when it comes to open access opposition and Beale's crusade. Beale and his colleagues have written so much more, and some of it is so much worse. We will delve into the muck and mire as we go along. And there's a lot of muck, y'all. Just so much muck. course the muck is what brought me to this place and this podcast open access opponents like Beale level a very specific and continuous rhetoric and this rhetoric tends to overshadow the good that comes from open access as a result academics are often less likely to use open access sources because open access legitimacy is constantly questioned now I should clarify that Beale's name is going to come up a lot during the topic of open access and this has nothing to do with malice on my part. The simple fact of the matter is that Jeffrey Beale placed himself at the forefront of open access opposition. And so there is no way that I can cover the subject without talking about him. He has written numerous articles about what he perceives as the dangers of open access, which he publishes in open access journals. He is then cited by other open access opponents, who he cites in return, and around and around they go in an academic feedback loop that never seems to end. Now summon him! All your heart! Here! Into this room! All of this leads me to ask, how much of the opposition to open access stems from a social and cultural belief about who deserves access to libraries and archives and the knowledge that they contain? What is the relationship between depictions of libraries and archives in pop culture and society's deep-seated anxiety about the secrets contained in locked vaults that only allow the worthy to enter? How do you know about the library? For you academics listening out there, yes, those were, in fact, my dissertation research questions. Academic rigor, y'all. Now, let's get back to that quote that I read to you earlier by Jeffrey Beale. If you'll recall, Beale rather dramatically exclaimed that open-access journals have created problems so serious that we believe they threaten the very existence of science more so than at any time since it began to emerge in 17th century Europe. Essentially, what Beale is suggesting is that open access will be the downfall of the Academy and of legitimate science, which, I mean, all. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pass The first time I read Beale's absurd statement, I had a visceral reaction. I'm pretty sure I laughed out loud in the library where I was reading his article for a paper I was writing. But I also remember being baffled that anyone would describe open access in such an enraged manner. The hysterical nature of his words also struck a familiar chord with me, and then I remembered a similar sentiment from Rachel Kane's 2015 novel, Ink and Bone. Imagine a world in which anyone, anywhere, could create and distribute their own words, however ignorant or flawed. And we have often seen dangerous progress that was only just checked in time to prevent more chaos. Cain's The Great Library series takes place in a world where the Library of Alexandria never fell, and instead became the governing body for an alternate Earth. The Library decided who received what knowledge, when, and how. They worked to contain and control information that they believed would be too threatening to the world, including the invention of the printing press. Over the course of the series, which takes place in the 2020s, we learn that the printing press has been invented many, many times over the preceding centuries. Each time, the library brutally suppresses the inventions, including the press created by Johannes Gutenberg in the 1440s. Much like Beale and his colleagues, the Great Library of Alexandria believes that free access to information will lead to unchecked chaos, and therefore they must control access in order to circumvent this possible, but highly unlikely, catastrophe. Other speculative fiction narratives repeat this same controlling rhetoric. As I mentioned in the last episode, the examples that I'll be using over the course of my dissertation include Kane's series, as well as Genevieve Cogman's The Invisible Library series, Rod Duncan's The Fall of the Gaslit Empire series, and A.J. Hackwith's Hell's Library series. In each of these series, the authors have created worlds where libraries and archives set the rules and decide who will and will not be able to access the information these institutions have hidden away. The librarians that rule these storehouses of forbidden knowledge have become gatekeepers by carefully controlling this knowledge to such an extent that the inhabitants of the different worlds are not always aware that things are being kept from them. And in the instances where the world's inhabitants do know that information is being hidden from them, some of them find it very difficult to believe that this could be for any other reason than the public good. First thing that you think of when I say the word library. Is it recording now? Yes. The first thing I think about library, the word library. When you think of libraries. Libraries. Yeah. Books. Lots and lots of books. People who love sniffing books. People who need to know the answers. People who need to get lost, to get found. Home. Their home. And that's the thing right we want to believe that libraries are like home and that the librarians that staff them only have our best interests at heart i know that's what i always believed to me librarians were the figurehead of this vast world contained within libraries and i know that i can't be the only one because librarians are often subjected to particular stereotypes in popular culture with very specific looks from the shushy finger to the cat-eye frames of their glasses, to the painfully tight twist of their buns. They are seen as stern and serious, but maybe a little sexy when the glasses come off and the hair comes out of that bun. All right, what I want you to do is take off your glasses, shake out your hair, and say, Mr. Booth, do you know what the penalty is for an overdue book? But honestly, We're just people, y'all, with our own opinions and biases. We aren't a monolith, and we don't all agree on how best to serve our patrons. Having said that, we have seen an unbelievable amount of book challenges in school and public libraries over the last few years that are bringing many librarians out of the gate and swinging. They're finding common ground and fighting together to make sure that people have access to the books they need. The shushy finger is being replaced by outcries over censorship in communities small and large. But what if it wasn't always this way? Because if I'm being honest here, gatekeeping has long been a part of libraries' institutional structures, and American librarians have a history of gatekeeping in libraries and archives. In the past, American librarians not only decided who should have access to information, but they also actively collaborated with governmental agencies on more than one occasion to spy on library patrons. Sometimes, all our liberties must be curtailed for the good of the common man. That may come as a shock to some of you. For some of you, it may not be surprising at all. It all depends on how much you know about American libraries and where you fall within the spectrum of gender, race, religion, and class in American society. But the history is there for anyone who wants to look. However, this is also a great big can of worms that will need to stay sealed for the moment. We'll discuss this in greater detail later, though. I promise. I am suggesting that we keep an eye on them. To protect the flame of knowledge from being extinguished. No matter the cost. So... How does all of this tie together and lead back to open access? Well, because open access is quite literally about access. It means making academic work freely available to the scholars and researchers that need it without gatekeeping. Gatekeeping in the library feels like the worst kind of betrayal if we believe that libraries and all that they contain should be open to every human being. For me, that is a very anxiety-inducing thought And reading Archive Anxiety Narratives helped me to reframe how I look at the subject of access and gatekeeping. So, what are Archive Anxiety Narratives exactly? Well, Joseph Hurtgen describes Archive Anxiety Narratives as those that deal with the fear that governments, corporations, or clandestine groups have or might alter archives in ways damaging to populations. This is a very real fear, both in fiction and in fact. If the library is the place where all of the world's knowledge exists, what do we do when the library becomes the strong arm of authority in that world? What do we do when the library decides who should have access to the information that they hold? The books that I will be analyzing in this dissertation podcast are all about archive anxiety. Some of the libraries, archives, and worlds depicted in these books are places of infinite space and wonder. Some make the rules when it comes to knowledge dissemination, and some exist between fear and resistance. And these feelings, the ways in which these libraries exist, is not unusual or even necessarily contradictory. Communications professor Gary Radford describes libraries as being constitutive of experiences of continual change, excitement, surprise, and discovery. In the library, one never knows what experience is going to come next. Come back alive, librarian. Now, as unsurprising as it was to know that I had passed my prospectus defense, at the time I was unaware of things that were happening behind the scenes and the stir that my project was causing. See, I didn't know that while I was defending my prospectus to my committee, my committee was in the position of needing to defend my prospectus to literally everyone else. Like we talked about in episode one, it all comes back to academic rigor. But what is that really, and who gets to make that decision? Because it seems as if the traditional dissertation format is only being clung to simply because it is the traditional dissertation format. Around these parts, traditional increasingly means irrelevance. Now, how well this entire podcast dissertation thing will work has yet to be seen. After all, this is only the end of the prologue, y'all. We still have 16 episodes to explore the open access debate, libraries and speculative fiction, and the process of creating a non-traditional dissertation in a world where change moves at a glacial pace. And that's the real crux of the issue. Open access changes the accepted structure of academic knowledge dissemination. My dissertation changes the way we create and disseminate academic knowledge. But change doesn't have to be a bad thing. We'll see as we move forward and discuss the books in question that putting gates and locks on the ways in which we share knowledge can lead to stagnation. And while these books are certainly fiction, there are lessons to be learned in the fictions that we create. These ideas aren't developed in a vacuum, and analyzing them can help us to confront the anxieties about archives and libraries that seem to be so common. Which is exactly what we'll be doing. There's a lot to talk about, and there are so many things that y'all need to know. And this? well. This is only the beginning. So much... So much happened here. So much is about to. Anxiety in the Archives is written, produced, and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick. You can find episodes, transcripts, and references at anxietyinthearchives.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with me about what you've heard, please feel free to find me on Twitter at ArchiveAnxiety. The theme song for Anxiety in the Archives is Mind Control by Half Cocked. This song and all other episode music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The cover art for Anxiety in the Archives was created by Matt Davis. This project couldn't have been born without the support of my committee, Gretchen Busel, Ashley Bender, and Dundee Lackey, who willingly ventured into undone ground with me. I'd like to thank everyone that allowed me to interview them for this episode, including G-Love and Shannon, and everyone who lent their voices to this episode and brought life to the books that I love, including Thax and Jack. I'd also like to thank Harvest House, for always providing a safe port in the middle of my academic storm. And finally, thank you for listening. Please join me in two weeks for Episode 3, Introduction, or Into the Library We Go.